Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the, the Big, Big Dinosaur, Dinosaur Podcast, Podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today's podcast is brought to you by Permia, a prehistoric apparel and art brand dedicated to creating collectible, scientifically accurate restorations of ancient life. Their clothing and artwork are available now on their Kickstarter page at permia.com slash kickstarter. And by Artemisia Publishing. They not only publish award-winning dinosaur books, but also coloring puzzles, which can be put together and then colored using markers, crayons, or colored pencils. You can get more information at apbooks.net. This week, we have an interview with Professor Sean Gulick about the Chicxulub impactor and what he learned from drilling into the peak ring down by the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. Exciting stuff. It is. There's been lots of other news stories popping up about it. Our dinosaur of the day is Centrosaurus, and we have a bunch of news. But first, we want to give an especially big thank you to a few of our Patreon supporters, specifically Chris, Nicholas, and Kyle and Betsy. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you so much. If you want to hop on that bandwagon... Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Dino. Yep. Before we jump into the news, we just want to mention, so John via Facebook had a dinosaur request for Tang Tian Wang, and we ended up covering it in the news in our last episode, episode 104. So John, hopefully you caught that and that it covers everything you want to know about that dinosaur. Yep. As is the case with most discoveries if you only have one to work with there isn't much to say outside of the initial paper but if we hear anything else we'll let you know yep so first in the news there's an article in cretaceous research by juan canalea and others about a new discovery from the early cretaceous in argentina specifically they found some teeth which are possibly from the youngest megalosaurid ever found and Megalosauridae is generally a Jurassic family, so that's pretty cool since it's a early Cretaceous find. They believe it was medium to large relative to other Megalosaurids, and it would also be the first Megalosaurid ever found in South America, let alone the youngest in the world. But it's only known from teeth, so it's not the best. That's interesting since Megalosaurids tend to be the wastebasket taxon. Well, they used to be. They're not so much anymore. Yeah. But yeah, they do have kind of unique teeth, so... Okay. Th they were pretty confident in their assertion. They were a little bit less confident in some partial vertebrae and tibia that they found, but they think those are a belosaurid, which is a dinosaur we covered before, Abel's lizard. <laughs> yep. And... They also found several more teeth that were from different theropods, but they weren't unique enough to assign to a particular group. So they just said they're theropod teeth. But possibly the most interesting thing, like I said, is that previously they thought that megalosaurids had kind of died out at the Jurassic-Cretaceous boundary. But this obviously doesn't agree with that since they're finding something that looks like a megalosaurid from the Cretaceous. So hopefully they'll find some more diagnostic remains than just teeth. It's not the first dinosaur found where it's just the teeth that was found. That's true. There are a lot of those. <laughs> Apparently teeth 
are pretty easy to find. People are always finding those megalodon teeth all over the place, but not so much the rest of the skeleton. That one's a little different too because they're more like cartilage, but anyway. Next up, an article by Spencer Lucas and others that's in ResearchGate, so I'm not sure. That might be preprint, but I'm not positive about that. Shows two new sets of dinosaur footprints that were found near Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. And Truth or Consequences is that funny city that was named after a game show in kind of central New Mexico. As one of the consequences, right? Yeah, I guess so. It was weird. I think it was in the 70s or something, but... At this spot, there are two sets of trackways, like I said, and they're in the Crevasse Canyon Formation. One is an ornithopod, possibly a hadrosauropodus, but the other is in pretty bad shape, so it's hard to say exactly what they are. Considering they're really close to the other track and they're similar in size, it may be another ornithopod, but they don't really know, so... Hopefully we'll find out more later. They're hopeful that there might be other dinosaur tracks nearby in the formation. That can obviously tell us more if they find some. Yeah, that'd be cool. Next up, Casey Holliday at SVP this year showed some of the work he was doing on dinosaur head ornamentation. So he was actually looking at many different archosaurs, meaning everything from crocodilians to every type of dinosaur and he was trying to figure out what kind of soft tissue they might have had around the fenestra and those are openings in the skull basically so if you look at like say a t-rex skull they have openings not just where their eyes are but then kind of in the middle of the skull and then near the front of the skull where the nasal passages and things would have been and basically the question is what would they do with these fenestra and is it possible that they would have been there for more than just reducing weight like could they have left room for a lot of blood vessels that would have you know supplied some new soft tissue or something so based on holiday's research he ended up showing an awesome picture of a raptor with a big waddle looking thing hanging off its neck for display (laughs) and he had other reconstructions where there were a lot of blood vessels around the area of the head where you kind of have some of these jaw muscles, but it looked like there were more blood vessels going there than you would need for just the muscles. So there might have been some ornamentation around the sides of the head and things too. It's kind of a tricky science to figure that out exactly, but it is interesting. (laughs) Kind of like a turkey? Yeah, a lot like a turkey. And there are other birds too that have these different parts of soft tissue hanging off for display. Then this week, there was also an interesting article in Scientific American that took a similar approach to ceratopsians. And basically, ceratopsians tend to have an opening in the skull below their nasal horn, or where their nasal horn would be if they're one of the ceratopsians that doesn't have a nasal horn. And the hole is larger than would be necessary just for breathing. So it's not like you could explain it all just by simple nasal passages that you would imagine for airflow. So one possibility is that the area was full of soft tissue and that blood vessels were there to supply some sort of large ornamentation. And interestingly, they go on to say that they may have been inflatable, quote-unquote, nose balloons. What? (laughs) Yeah. So there are some earlier theories about the potential for air sacs in the skull. 
And if you have this air sac combined with a display structure at the front of a head, you end up with a nose balloon, basically. That's crazy. It kind of makes sense that it would be inflatable because if it was permanently on display there, it looks like it would really get in the way of eating because this opening is pretty close to the mouth. So you wouldn't necessarily want stuff hanging there all the time, but maybe you could inflate it and then show off when you want to and then pull it back in. (laughs) It's pretty funny. Very theoretical, though. It's hard. With soft tissue, since none of it fossilizes, you never really know for sure. For some reason, I think nose balloons, I think of clown noses. Yeah. It's not too dissimilar. They probably would have been red, I'm guessing, <laughs> if it's for display and, you know, it's filling up with blood and stuff. Clown dinosaurs. Yeah. There's a new national natural landmark called the West Bijou Site. And it's about 30 miles outside of Denver and comprises 7,613 acres or about 12 square miles or 31 square kilometers. So it's decently sized, but pretty small for like a national park or something. According to the Smithsonian, it has a 1.18 inch thick band of rock at the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary, which is also known as when dinosaurs went extinct. And it's also the 599th national landmark, so, yeah. I wonder how many of those are dinosaur-related. I don't know. (laughs) I'll let you figure that out for a fun fact. Okay. Go through all 599 of them. Ooh, that might take a while. (laughs) Yeah, I can think of one other one, Dinosaur National Monument, unless that doesn't count as a national landmark. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure either. And last in the scientific news, there's a new article on ResearchGate by Stephen Jasinsk and Robert Sullivan that looks into the validity of Stegoceras novamexicanum. And you probably remember that some scientists have suggested that Stegoceras should be a junior synonym for Pachycephalosaurus, which is that dome-headed one that is often depicted butting heads since Stegoceras is smaller and had certain head ornamentation that makes it look more like a juvenile. And on top of that, Stegoceras novamexicanum is often considered too similar to Stegoceras validum to be its own species. So it's a question of whether Stegoceras gets its own genus and then also of whether Stegoceras novamexicanum gets its own species. <laughs> So there are two groups coming after them. Well, after analyzing several specimens, these researchers determined that the type specimen of Stegoceras novamexicanum is in fact a subadult, but it is a subadult of a species that is distinguishable from other pachycephalosaurids. So this is partly because Stegoceras novamexicanum finds come from a relatively small area, so they're kind of geographically isolated from some of the other pachycephalosaurids. And then although the specimens have some features that look like juveniles of other pachycephalosaurs, like they have a smaller extension of bone from the skull, they also have some typical adult features, like that extension of the bone from the skull is in the shape that is characteristic of adults in other species of pachycephalosaurids. So when they added up all these details, they decided it's probably 
different enough to warrant its own species, even though it does have some similarities. And it probably just means that the type specimen is a juvenile. On top of that, they added at the end that Stegocerus novomexicanum is more gracile than Stegocerus validum, which is basically a way to say that it's thinner and possibly quicker. It's kind of more, it's got a more slim build. So even as an adult, it didn't look as robust. So it might have been its own species because of that as well. It's interesting how there's a debate that Stegocerus might just be a junior synonym for Pachycephalosaurus, but then within that, it's no, there are at least two species. <laughs> yep. It all depends on how how many different characteristics you consider necessary to warrant your own species where you draw that line. This is just one more in the camp of splitting rather than lumping. Yep. So next, thanks to Rob from Facebook who shared his art with us and alerted us to draw Dinovember. We've heard of Dinovember and we've talked about that before, but I hadn't heard about the drawing part of it before. So basically, people draw lots of dinosaurs, which is amazing. And Rob is a cartoonist who makes nature comics about four to five times per week. And this month, his focus is on dinosaur cartoons. So his site, if you want to check it out, is underdonecomics.com. And so far, as of this recording anyway, he's created 12 dinosaur cartoons. He's got some hilarious comics. I especially enjoy his time traveler one of Doc Brown. Back to the Future. So my favorite, well, he's got a few with Doc Brown. He doesn't say it's Doc Brown. He just calls him the time traveler. But my favorite is the one with the sauropod wearing an exoskeleton costume. And Doc says, great, Scott, they have exoskeletons. <laughs> and then the caption is, the time traveler didn't realize it was Halloween in the Mesozoic. <laughs> so you can see all of Rob's comics, again, on his website at underdonecomics.com as well as his Instagram and Facebook, both are Underdone Comics, and we'll post a link so you can see for yourself. Nice. Yeah. Thanks, Rob. Next, according to Earth Archives, speaking of art, paleontology needs paleo art, which is not surprising. So paleo art shapes how we see dinosaurs and the prehistoric world. And according to this article, before 1830, there was almost no paleo art available to the public. Scientists shared images, but only with each other. Then English geologist Henry de la Beche created Duria Antiquor, a more ancient dorset, in 1830, and it's a watercolor that depicts prehistoric animals in water, and he based the painting on marine and flying reptile bones that had been found in dorset, and he sold prints of his work and then donated the money he earned to Mary Anning so that she could continue her work. So about 30 years later, Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins created the Crystal Palace Dinosaurs. And then in the early 1900s, paleoart became more mainstream with artists like Heinrich Harder and Charles Knight. And they laid the groundwork for how dinosaurs were portrayed in movies like The Lost World and King Kong. Then in the 1970s, people started thinking of dinosaurs as warm-blooded and active. And Bob Bakker, Eli Kish, and Gregory S. Paul created representations of dinosaurs like Velociraptors and Deinonychus. And this was all part of the dinosaur renaissance. And this led to Jurassic Park. And now with the internet, paleoart is much more abundant, and dinosaurs are depicted in colorful, new, exciting ways. However, scientists and news organizations are limited sometimes in how they can use this art, since rights may be unclear, or sometimes you're just not allowed to use them. Though we have found a lot of good art on Wikimedia Commons. 
And actually, one of the artists who goes by Funk Monk recently wrote a post on why he got into this or how he got into this. And uh, he said it's basically because there was a lack of art. And then because it's on Wikimedia, he often finds his artwork just popping up random places, like on <laughs> posters or even in museums. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah. So uh, this article, though, it's about Studio 252 Million Years Ago, which is a platform created by scientists, artists, and technologists, and they allow science and science writers or communicators to browse through images and use them. And the site says the service will be available soon. We'll post a link. And I'm excited when they comes up because we are often looking for dinosaur images as well. Yeah, it's useful when you're doing blog posts and stuff rather than just having a bunch of text to have a nice picture to go with it. Exactly. Next, Gifted Child Magazine has created an interactive dinosaur encyclopedia and data dig, which is really cool and really involved. So Steve Walsh worked with many people to create what's called the Dinosaur Encyclopedia, and he is inspired by movies such as the original King Kong and dinosaur books. And the tool is really interactive and dynamic and will be updated on an ongoing basis, it sounds like. So currently it has information on 115 non-avian dinosaurs, and each record has 38 fields of information, which includes features, phylogenetics, lifestyle, and representation in the media. There's also a glossary with over 1,500 definitions and more than 1,600 illustrations. And it took four years for Steve and his team to develop, and the software runs on Windows and Mac, costs about 40 bucks. So this sounds like a really good database you're looking for something comprehensive yeah might be worth it although if it only has 115 non-avian dinosaurs it's probably not too comprehensive yet no but they update it so yeah i'm guessing you purchase once and you get the updates hopefully yeah hopefully they get to several hundred more (laughs) because there's a lot of dinosaurs yeah Next, in the latest Harper's Bazaar spread, Chloe Grace Moretz is photographed writing a ceratopsian. This is according to Celebuzz. And Chloe's the face of Coach right now, and Coach created a new mascot, Rexy the Dinosaur. And that may be why you're seeing a lot of dinosaur fall fashion trends right now. <laughs> so there's also a photo of her cowering in front of a pachycephalosaurus. So post a link. It's mostly just fun to look at the pictures look really old school yeah which maybe they did because it's like dinosaurs are old so we're gonna make this look old but it really just looks like they're from like the 60s or something well they kind of dressed her that way too the way like in king kong yeah woman was yeah it's interesting (laughs) and last thanks to patrick for sharing the new king kong movie with us on facebook speaking of king kong yeah (laughs) The movie is called Kong Skull Island, and it stars Tom Hiddleston. Do you know that guy? He's Loki from the Thor movies. Um, Also, Brie Larson, Samuel L. Jackson, John Goodman, and John C. Riley. And it's being directed by Jordan Vogt Roberts, I'm guessing is how you say it, who is relatively new to directing. But he did direct four episodes of You're the Worst, which is a TV show that I really enjoy. It's very much a comedy, though, so it'll be interesting to see how he does more of a, like, thriller. I looked really closely at the trailer for any dinosaurs, like, basically going frame by frame, and then I think I made YouTube angry because it locked me out of watching the video after, like, a half hour of it. I don't know. They must have some kind of algorithm for if somebody's spending too much time on one video. It's weird. Anyway, 
there is a Triceratops skull for just a fraction of a second in the background of one shot through like a haze. And then one of the actresses turns to look at it like something's popping out. So I don't know if that means there's a Triceratops coming up or maybe something that just ate a Triceratops. But mostly the trailer has monsters called skull crawlers that look more like giant Komodo dragons than dinosaurs because they're very sprawled, not standing really upright, and they have long lizard-like heads. And then there's also a huge spider that comes in after them. So not as much dinosaur action as I was hoping, but both King Kong and the other monsters are quite a bit bigger than in the other movies. King Kong looks like he might be two to 300 feet tall compared with maybe about 100 feet in the original. Maybe even less in the original. I'm not sure exactly how tall it was. Kind of depended on the scene. He changed size quite a bit in that movie. In the original. <laughs> yeah. And this new movie, Kong Skull Island, is all done shooting now. And it's scheduled to be released on March 10th of 2017. One place I was reading about it, they said they made King Kong so much bigger in this movie because Godzilla vs. Kong is apparently coming out in 2020. And since Godzilla is so much bigger than King Kong, they had to make King Kong bigger so that they could battle more. Laying the groundwork. Yeah, exactly. And Godzilla 2 is also scheduled to come out in 2019. There was that first Godzilla movie that came out about two years ago. There's one that came out last month, I think. Another Japan. Godzilla movie? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. And they had a VR thing to go with it. Jeez, that's a lot of Godzilla. There have been like four Godzilla remakes in like the last 20 years. It's a lot of At Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. Before we get into our interview with Dr. Sean Gulick, we have a brief word from our new sponsor, Artemisia Publishing. And we got to meet Jeff from Artemisia Publishing at SVP this year, and I was Really happy to see those coloring puzzles. Yeah, they had a different one on display while people would put them together. And then at the end, you could put them together and they'd switch them out once they were all completed. Yeah, so we bought the Giganotosaurus one. It's an 8x10, 100-piece puzzle. And my plan, as soon as we have some free time, is to do a time-lapse video or putting together the puzzle and then coloring it in. Yeah, it's really cool looking. We got kind of the first one that they produced, and then they made some slightly larger ones later with Chasmosaurus and Spinosaurus that also look really cool. And I believe, so everyone was taking turns putting together the puzzle and coloring it in at SVP, and then I think that copy ended up going up for auction. (laughs) Auction. Yeah, yeah, I think it did. And in addition to the coloring pencils, they also have a coloring book called A Dynasty of Dinosaurs, and that's where the pictures where these coloring images came from. They also have the Dinosaur Learning Activity Book. Yeah, and that's got all sorts of different puzzles and games and things in it, which looks like a lot of fun, especially for kids. And they're both award-winning books. They've each won the New Mexico-Arizona Book Awards for children's activity books. Really cool. And the Dinosaur Learning Activity Book, in particular, it's a bestseller. They've sold over 6,000 copies already, so... You should definitely check it out. These are, at the very least, some very good illustrations. Oh, yeah. They're really cool looking. And if you want more information or if you'd like to order any of the books, you can go to apbooks.net. And we'll post a link to where you can get the two new puzzles in our show notes because it's a longer 
URL that would be hard to remember. <laughs> and now on to our interview with Dr. Sean Gulick. Dr. Sean Gulick is a research professor at the University of Texas, Austin. He and his team just finished evaluating the core samples that they took from the Chicxulub peak ring that was created by the enormous dinosaur-killing impactor, and we're really excited to talk to him about all the details. All right. I know you've been doing a lot of interviews. I've seen a lot of things popping up on my Google alerts and things about your work. Yeah, no, it's been really, uh, it's been busy. I'm glad to see all the excitement. Yeah. So what led you to drill into the peak ring instead of some other part of the crater? Yeah, it's a great question. So yeah, you could choose to, if you only could drill one one place in the Chicxulub impact crater, you could envision you might drill in, in say, the center of the crater and try to hit the, the melt sheet that lies in the center, or you could drill in the in the, the trough around the edge of the crater that would have sort of the thickest section of material that infilled the crater afterwards. Mm -hmm. But we actually chose to drill a landform, the, the peak ring, which is like a ring of mountains around the center of the crater, because there have been no samples ever collected from a peak ring of an impact, in part because Chicxulub is the only uh, large impact crater on Earth with a, a clear peak ring that hasn't been eroded away. Um, and so the next nearest place that you could say, figure out what a peak ring is made of or how they're formed would be to go to the moon. Yeah. <laughs> Obvious target it would be to drill, um, into the peak ring and you could get some of the other things on the way. So we could still get the sediments that bury the peak ring and learn about how life came back and the impact. We could get whatever the material that mantles the peak ring that, that, that we can see in, in our geophysical data. And of course, we would get significant amount of, of the upper part of the rocks that make up a peak ring. Great. Yeah, I was kind of surprised when I saw that the Chicxulub crater was the only one that had a peak ring. But I guess it makes sense since it's supposed to be like a one in two million or one in two billion year size asteroid or something, some huge size for an impact. And since it was yeah, pretty recent, yeah. Yeah, we should actually get uh, one of that size every 100 million years. Oh, really? Yeah, but the problem with the Earth record is that 71% uh, of our planet are oceans, and beneath those oceans are oceanic plates, which whenever by plate tectonics they are up against a, a continent, they're going to lose the fight, and they're going to subduct and be destroyed. So ocean basins are never older than about 200 million years. So we have a very incomplete record for much of the Earth. And, and so thus, right now, we only know three very large impacts on Earth, Chicxulub, which is 66 million years, and then Sudbury uh, in Canada and Vredefort in South Africa, which are both around 2 billion years old. Oh, okay. So they're eroded well below a depth that you would ever see their peak ranks, um, and Chicxulub is perfectly preserved. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I remember from plate tectonics classes that most of the ocean is way younger than continents. And I was kind of thinking, how much longer would the Chicxulub impact be there? Because it's not really near a subduction zone, is it? No, actually, it, we kind of lucked out on this one. So it was a shallow, well, lucked out in the sense that we can observe it. And I guess lucked out also in the sense that it caused the mass extinction event. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> but, uh, 
at the time, the Yucatan uh, Peninsula was a shallow uh, sea. It was a carbonate uh, platform. So it was, think of a bunch of limestone ramp off into the ocean, if you will. Mm-hmm. So one side of the crater might have been uh, two kilometers of water depth, and the other side of the crater might have been really shallow, like, say, 100 meters of water depth. And after the impact basically created the crater, then it was sort of a basin that was, um, you know, a, a little bowl-shaped thing with this peak ring in the middle that was probably on average about a kilometer deep, but had a big hole to the north where there was no rim. So it, it was open to the open to the ocean. Mm-hmm. But it is on top of continental crust. What's underneath that shelf, underneath that peninsula, is actually continental crust. Okay. So we don't expect it to get subducted. It, it may later, in the fullness of plate tectonics and time, have a, a collision with something and, and have the record destroyed by it becoming a mountain range or something like that. But for the time being, anyway, uh, given that the history of the last, say, on the order of 100 million years, the Yucatan Peninsula has been a pretty stable place, technically speaking. And so a good one for preserving this record of this event. Cool. How far east do you have to go before you get to the edge of the continental shelf? Oh, from the from the impact crater itself? Yeah. Yeah, it, it actually goes quite a f- quite a bit farther out. It's another, it's tens of kilometers farther, depends on which direction you go. It's almost 50 kilometers in some directions before you get to the edge of the shelf. It's a, it's quite a wide continental shelf. In fact, the pier there is at the port of Progresso, um, and it's the longest pier in the world. Hmm. It's a six kilometer long pier, Holy cow. just in order to get to a water depth of about seven meters, so they can pull it <laughs> up. Yeah. That's hilarious. That's kind of like around Florida. They've got spots like that too, I think, where there's quite a long stretch of shallow. Maybe not to that extreme, though. That's pretty crazy. No, it's, it's similar. It, uh, Florida, the west side of Florida is also what they call a carbonate platform, and, and as is the Yucatan. So it's a, it's a very similar kind of province. Uh, Yucatan just happens to be a bit, a bit flatter. Cool. So what have you learned so far from these core samples that you've taken? Well, it's still very much early days, but um, we kind of had three primary goals. Uh, the first was to study the fossils in the sediments that bury the peak ring, basically the sediments within the basin in the center of the, of the structure. And we started drilling approximately 50 million years ago in, in the age of the rock samples that we were collecting, which was at about 500 meters below the modern seafloor. Mm-hmm. Um, and we collected... So something like 115 meters or so of these limestones that bury the crater. And so we could look at all of the fossils within those, those sediments and ask questions about how life recovered after the mass extinction event, you know, in the oceans in particular, because that's what we're recording in those limestones, and at ground zero of the event. So that, that's pretty exciting. So that's still ongoing work. And then we also collected about 130 meters of basically broken up and melted rocks called breccia, or, or the geologic term is swayvite. And there's a lot of excitement at studying the, the sort of the hydrothermal systems inside there, as well as, as, as in the peak ring itself, because there's interest in whether or not a, uh, a, an impact crater can create an ecosystem in the subsurface, hmm. um, sort of subsurface habitat for microbial life. So that's ongoing as well, you know, looking for counting the cells that are found, extracting DNA, all that kind of stuff. Wow. And then the last one, and the one that we just published on, is the simple question of how impacts work as a geologic process, and how is it that, you know, when you initially create an impact that might be fairly 
deep into the subsurface that it results in these kind of wide, flat craters like you see on the moon, but with these enigmatic features of topography within their centers, like these peak rings. And since we had no samples of a peak ring, the debate has been all centered around you know, measuring widths and heights of, of crater rims and peak rings and making arguments about formation or computer models that simulate how you might create an impact to get these peak rings. And that those communities have been debating for a long time. And we, uh, we figured you could test it by simply figuring out what the peak ring is actually made of. Yeah. And I saw, I think as part of that paper, you made a really awesome animation that showed how the ground shifted during the impact and immediately after. And it almost looks like a wave or something of just liquid. And then you think, oh, that's granite. But <laughs> Right. That's the big test, right? Is if the models that um, view the process uh, to be one where the, the velocities and the energies are such that the target temporarily behaves like a slow-moving fluid, mm -hmm. then the prediction of those would be you'd first open up a hole, and then uh, in this case, the hole would be 100 kilometers across by 30 kilometers deep, so a big hole. <laughs> the sides would then collapse in, oh, and I should point out that hole would have sort of an uplifted rim all the way around it, which would be the height of the Himalayas. Mm -hmm. And that would collapse inward to the center of the crater, just as the center is rebounding upward, possibly 10 or 15 kilometers above the Earth's surface. And then that up rebounding center would collapse outward over top of the, of the sides as they came in and created sort of this perched ring of mountains that we call a peak ring. And that model predicts that the, the, the material that make up the peak ring should come from deep. And indeed, when we drilled it, we found granite that was probably from as deep as 10 kilometers. Wow. So six miles down. So uh, it was sort of a, a real win for one end member of the way of thinking about how impacts work, <laughs> which is these ones that view them as a dynamic collapse process, you know, where things are moving again, sort of like this slow moving fluid that allows all of that that I just described to happen in, in just a few minutes. Yeah. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And watching that picture, I couldn't help but just keep wondering, like, when is this going to solidify? Because you've got a little section highlighted where you drilled. And it's like, how is that going to line up in a way that makes any sense while everything's just moving crazily? It's really cool. And, and the interesting thing there is it never actually is a liquid in the sense it isn't melted, right? There's some melt that forms, but the whole pie, you know, the whole crust isn't melted. The crust is just moving in a fluid manner. Oh, yeah. So it stays as a rock. It stays as a, as a, as a you know, as a solid material, but somehow loses its cohesion, loses its ability to, to stick together and thus can actually temporarily move in the way that that, that movie shows. Um, and we think it, it's got to be related to the pressures involved. Hmm. So that little blue patch in that movie is actually also tracking what kind of maximum pressures do we think that the rocks that eventually become the peak ring would experience? Because we can then again look at the cores and test it. And in the cores, we found pressures from 10 to 35 gigapascals of pressure, um, and which is something on the order of eight or 9,000 PSI. I'm sorry, eight or nine million PSI. Have <laughs> zeros off there. Uh, yeah. And you know, so thus, thus maybe it's that pressure that ultimately somehow weakens the target. When you drilled, was it really fractured rock because of that, well, or was it still? 
Absolutely. Great question. So, in fact, uh, it was, you know, we were all ooing and aahing over the fact we had pink granite coming up or orange, orange colored granite coming up. Mm-hmm. But then when you looked at the end of the, the, the cores, when we first cut them open or you know, split the, the sections apart, you could see they're completely shot through with fractures and faults. Mm-hmm. I mean, just in every orientation you can imagine. And then in, we actually found true faults that, that showed evidence of movement where you could see crystal growth on the direction it moved. Oh, cool. And then we found evidence all the way down at the crystal scale of high pressures. You know, things like the quartz crystals had deformation planes of, of deformation cutting through the crystals and things like biotite, you know, that black mineral that you see in, you know, it's a kind of mica was actually kinked by the pressure wave. Wow. So you could really tell that this thing had gone through uh, a ringer. If you will, <laughs> completely distressed. Um, and the physical properties were fundamentally changed. So not just was it fractured visibly, but if you measured the density of it, you know, most geology students will tell you uh, continental crust should be about 2.65 grams per cubic centimeter. And that's because it's made of granite. That's mm-hmm. the normal density of granite. Well, these granites were more like 2.2 to 2.4. So they're reduced in density. So they're lighter than they should be. And they had lots more pore space. <laughs> so instead of it being maybe 1% or 2% maximum uh, pores to ver- relative to the amount of rock in a given sample, these were something like 10% or higher pores relative to the rock. So somehow it opened up pore space. It opened up holes, if you will, in between the grains within the granite by this process of shock and fracturing and, and movement. Yeah. Well, from that video, you could almost imagine it being like making whipped cream or something that's folding in, you know, extra air while you're sloshing it all around and cracking it yeah. apart. <laughs> that's an interesting analog. I kind of like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and it's, it's a really important observation because when we think about several things, when we think about how planetary surfaces evolve, places other than Earth where that are not protected by an atmosphere, we can envision if you have four billion or four and a half billion years of bombardments by impacts, that you're going to overall affect the crust of the target. We know that the impacts are bringing things up from deep, so it's kind of recycling the crust a lot. Mm-hmm. And also, you're lowering the density and expanding the porosity and fundamentally damaging the surface. And so this fits from recent results of a gravity mission to the moon called GRAIL, where they argued that the entire lunar crust was maybe 8% porosity on average, which everybody thought that's amazing. Well, I think you know it, it's pretty clear that it's impacts to blame for, for that kind of observation. Yeah. There's some kind of Swiss cheese analogy there that <laughs> is escaping me. <laughs> well, and the, other, the other side that I guess got people excited is if you're making a whole lot of pore space, if you're making you know, in the subsurface and then you're flushing it with hot fluids because the melt sheet's right next door and it's a you know, very hot, vibrant, um, vigorously um, probably flushed place in the wake of an impact, that you now have created a, an interesting habitat in the subsurface for life. Because all life really needs is a place to live. It needs some fluids and it needs a chemical exchange. And so there's a lot of interesting chemistry likely moving through these rocks. And so we can envision impacts are therefore potentially a really good habitat for life to live in the wake of an impact. That's really interesting to me because I always thought of the impact site as kind of like the ultimate sterilization process. But I guess... If it doesn't all melt, it doesn't necessarily all get super hot, or would it just 
be hot but temporarily and then with the ocean water and everything microbes could rush back in yeah i think that's right i think it, it would be hot and it would actually stay hot for quite a long time but there are microbes that as long as it's not too hot right there are microbes that can live at fairly high temperatures that um, live in say mid-ocean ridge kind of settings that are quite hot um, we call them extremophiles things that love extreme conditions but we know they exist and we have, you know, hydrothermal minerals we saw in these cores. So we know these, these hydrothermal systems were flushing through. And so now the, the work to do is to seek to extract some DNA out of the cores uh, and do cell counts. And there's some precedent to this. I don't know if you know, but the uh, Chesapeake Bay has a large impact crater beneath it called the Chesapeake Bay Impact Crater. Hmm. Uh, it's about 85 kilometers across, about 35 million years old. And when they drilled into it, they actually found elevated counts of cells down in the subsurface of the crater at about 1,500 meters depth, so you know, close to a mile down, which is you know, a pretty exciting result because that's modern cells. It's living cells, hmm. right? So this is a 35-million-year-old crater created some kind of ecosystem in, inside it, you know, down in the subsurface of, that then evolved such that we still have you know, an ecosystem today that's no longer being fed by the impact, but but was there because of the impact. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting because I would, I would have assumed that these extremophiles, after it cooled, would kind of die out and it might go back to nothing. But the fact that it yeah. maintained is fascinating. Well, I think that's, that's a wonderful question. And, and your, your instinct is what my instinct would also be that, you know, once you take away these chemical reactions that they're sustained on and the temperatures and so on, why doesn't that ecosystem die off? But <laughs> if evolution finds a way uh, and results in, you know, an ecosystem that can survive despite having been cut off from its original reason for being. Yeah. Now, certainly any, you know, any microbes, were there any on the asteroid itself are thought to, to be gone, thought to be vaporized and, and destroyed if there were any. Likewise, anything right at the target, you know, right at ground zero might well have died, but not everything in all distances away. So as long as there's some connection within the crust that can microbes can move around in, you know, then you can actually have a, a seeding of this this habitat in the subsurface. Yeah. And that's a question that needs a lot more research and is one of our future goals. Cool. So I know that after the impact, or really at the exact moment of the impact, geologically speaking, it layered a layer of iridium all over the Earth, which is this really handy way to date things at the end of the Cretaceous. When you were drilling, did you find a bunch of iridium, or would that have been farther towards the actual impact site? Yeah, well, that's another arena of, of study, which is to look for any evidence of the asteroid itself within the, within the cores. But it's not something you ever get an immediate answer on. Uh, iridium is, is it comes in a parts per billion scale if you're going to find it at all. Mm. And so that's not we don't have an instrument on the drill rig or at the initial place where we split the uh, split the material to look at something at that at that levels. So just to, to check, we have sent samples to four different labs around the world to see if there is um, any evidence of that. So jury's still out on that one. <laughs> All right, makes sense. It is absolutely a link, though, of the asteroid impact to the to the end Cretaceous everywhere in the world outside the crater. You know, you do find this iridium anomaly eighty times background that says you know there was an event from an asteroid that took place right at the end of the Cretaceous, coincident with the mass extinction event. 
sure is handy. It's almost like having a, you know, universal timestamp or something. Oh, it's an excellent, you know, marker horizon, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, this is in fact, you know, this is, this idea has just been used again recently. You know, we've redefined the geological time scale to include the Anthropocene as a sub part of the Holocene. And they used 1950 as the year, basically bombs, you know, again, you know, this wonderful, uh, horribly created, but wonderful marker within the, the modern geologic record of a change in time that is, they're arguing, is going to be the thing that a geologist of the future could recognize as the beginning of a new era. Interesting. Did that leave the same kind of marker? Like, could you find something in like Kansas from nuclear tests? Absolutely. Anywhere, anywhere you go that you measure sediments from, you know, the 1950s and on, you will find evidence of bomb created isotopes that were not present prior to that. Wow. So it's a, a very clear marker. That's, that's kind of freaky. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is a little bit. So a, a crazy fact I read, and I wanted you to weigh in on it. There was a kind of a simulation done. I forget which university did it somewhere in the Midwest. And they said that 48,000 cubic miles of material were shifted as a result of the Chicxulub impact. But, you know, it wasn't that it all like moved to a particular spot. I think some of it's kind of like this peak ring formation where it kind of moved left five feet and right three feet kind of thing. Yeah, and I suspect that that number is probably also now out of date. But the way to think about it is when you first, you know, you have this 14-kilometer asteroid, which is coming in at 20 kilometers per second, impact the Earth. You know, it's going to open up that hole, you know, that, that sort of instant transient cavity. Again, it's 100 kilometers wide by 30 kilometers deep. But in doing so, the uppermost few kilometers that get hit are going to actually vaporize and mm. go up into this big vapor plume, along with most of the asteroid, right? And then the next few kilometers are going to be actually ejected out of the crater as particles. And then the rest of it, what's below that, is the part that gets moved out of the way, rebounds up, and collapses inwards. Okay. So sides that, that were not ejected or vaporized can collapse inward. We find that in the crater where we have sort of Cretaceous age sediments and evapor, you know, limestones and evaporites have fallen into the crater as big slump blocks. And the peak actually lies on top of those, yet it came from very deep below the area that was actually ejected and vaporized. So that material has actually spread all over the world, right? That whole digging of many kilometers down has spread all over the world. But then in addition, all the material that was displaced outwards and back inwards and to create the, the final impact, all also moved. So it is an enormous area that was directly affected. And we think we actually can image on our geophysical data faults that cut through the entire crust. And we can even see an uplift at the crust mantle boundary, it's what's called the Moho, by a couple of kilometers permanently placed upward in the center of the crater. Holy cow. Yeah, and that that's interesting that it went up too. <laughs> it's that Again, it's that rebound process. Yeah. Right? I mean, if you picture throwing a rock in a pond, what's the immediate result? Ripples go out, but the sides collapse in and the center splashes up. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Now, this, you know, this is not quite water in, in motion. It's a, a slower moving fluid than that, but the same concept holds. There is a rebound uh, effect. 
and it's a very important one. Cool. You mentioned the um, several kilometers that vaporized. Is that what ended up being that kind of glass that was raining down, or was that the layer that was ejected? So most of the actual glass is in the ejecta, but you will find the spherules. They're actually spherical, but they're also made usually of some kind of a glass, but they're round. Those are actually condensates. So those are actually the vapor plume that then condenses back as a, as a spherule, as a ball, and it rains down. So we have actually glass in both the ejected tectites and in the, which are, you know, materials that have traveled through the air as a, as a semi-solid versus things that went up as a vapor, condensed, and rained back down. Okay. So those microtectite things are ejecta, and then the raining ones are a different category? Yeah, condensates is the way to think of them. They're the things that, that condensed from the vapor plume, and you often hear things like spherules, which are these, again, these little glass balls, if you will. Cool. Um, and and there's, a, there's a terrible muddying of these terms that happen. So you always have to be a little bit careful when people use those terms because they, they cross the boundary between them quite often in their use. But, you know, the, the two processes are important. There are things that are literally fired out of the crater by the energy, yeah. you know, 100 million atomic bombs of energy. Um, and then there are things that are literally vaporized as a plume that then recondense and rain back down. And, you know, if you do simulations of this material arriving at a place like Natasha Artemiva, a colleague of ours, has done a really nice one where it shows the ejector arriving over Europe, 6,000 kilometers away. And you can see that the ejector arrives sort of at the top of the stratosphere. And then the heavier stuff, like the spherules, are raining down fairly early, very quickly, you know, within, the, within hours, causing a heating event, causing friction in the atmosphere that will set off wildfires and things like that and, and heat up the surface of the Earth. And that's one of the kill mechanisms. But then all the, the finer stuff, the dust, and in this case, we may have had sulfate that became a sulfate aerosol. It would be up in that finer stuff. It's what would then impede photosynthesis and ultimately likely uh, pretty much crash the, the food chain. Yeah, that's that nuclear winter thing, right? Right. And, and it's unclear how long it would last in this case. There's estimates months to years. Wow. How far was there stuff raining on the entire earth, like these glass things? Did that make it all the way around to what's on the opposite side? I guess Russia? I don't I don't know what's over there. Oh, India, right? Well, yeah, India wasn't there at the time, but <laughs> Oh, that's true. I was still moving north. <laughs> right. So yes, it would have been it is a global boundary layer. In fact, we think some of the ejected particles likely took more than one trip around. Wow. You know, so there's nowhere that didn't have material raining down from the sky or blocking the atmosphere above everywhere on the planet. Now, they have been, depending, and this is, again, a research topic, depending on the angle of the hit, you can actually vary the amount of ejecta in different directions, and that may actually be, be important. Mm -hmm. But because we don't have a perfectly preserved surface, you know, from 66 million years ago everywhere, we can't do like you would say on the moon or Venus, where you can actually see the, the spray of the ejecta, mm -hmm. use it to backtrack the direction of the impact. We don't, we don't have that. So we're trying to uh, attack that question in other ways. Yeah. So with it raining and obviously the condensation process producing a lot of heat and then lighting things on fire, do you think the whole earth would have been engulfed in flame? That's a good question. I mean, uh, 
the debate is scattered wildfires versus worldwide wildfires. And there is soot that has been found in many boundary sections at the end of the Cretaceous. I think the debate went back to sort of scattered for a while, and maybe it's now moving back again to, to closer to worldwide wildfires. But it's very dependent on the interactions of the ejected uh, material and the vapor plume with the atmosphere. And so there's a lot of specific debates about that. And that also leads to these questions of how hot the surface got for how long. Mm -hmm. So was it a pizza oven for hours? Was it a toaster oven for tens of minutes? You know, these, these are differences in how efficiently it killed large land animals, for instance. Yeah. The interesting thing to me with that, too, is when there are these depictions, like I think the Natural History Channel did one not too long ago, where they showed basically the whole Earth looking like Venus or something, just like engulfed in this big fire mess. I can't imagine anything surviving that. So it seems like it would have to be a little bit less severe than pizza oven for hours kind of mentality, because how would you even have anything left? Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point to make, that you can't have that go on for too long or you don't have the 25% that did survive, survive. You know, and there is an observation that everything large died, both in the, in the oceans and on land. But that actually, you know, everything larger than about 25 kilograms went extinct. But that, that may well be simply because of the food needs, not necessarily because of these initial, you know, effects like the, like the firestorm. So there's, there's, there's debate still on this. And the other big debate on the kill mechanisms is we know it's uneven. The oceans, the surface oceans, actually had about a 90% extinction rate. Yeah. Versus rivers and streams, only maybe 5%. Oh, really? I didn't know it was that low. That's weird. Yeah. It's a really big difference depending on, on the ecosystem involved. And it may be a big difference. You know, the carrion eaters may have done better than the primary, you know, predators. I mean, mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't know enough of the details. Uh, what we do know is that large things went extinct. And in places where we have very large numbers and can do statistics, like looking at the foraminifera, the zooplankton that live in the ocean, you know, these things, all the larger ones of those went extinct too, and only the smaller ones made it through. And in fact, only four species of forams made it. And all modern forams evolved from those four, which is a phenomenal concept to think about. Yeah, that's really interesting because it, I had the simplistic view of like, well, the big things died because they couldn't hide or something, or the ones that were in burrows at the time happened to survive. But if you start putting plankton into that theory... Yeah, you know, you can kind of extend it down. They're the, the zooplankton eat, you know, the phytoplankton, or, or some of them do. And the phytoplankton had about a 90% extinction rate. So maybe it is just the food chain that, that matters in that case. But it's, uh, it's interesting that there is some connection to body size. There's also a connection to simplicity of the organisms. You know, the complicated ones that lived to the end of Cretaceous largely went out, and the, maybe the ones that were more uh, generalists made it. But th these are all things that we really want to look at and understand a whole lot better. Why did the things that survive survive, and then ultimately become the you know the breeding stock, if you will, that caused evolution of all the modern organisms? Yeah, man, that's awesome. I hope you find all the answers. <laughs> <laughs> keep working more papers come this year i hope great i've read really conflicting things about the size of the wave what do you think about that the tsunami yeah yeah so we um have a large pile of broken and melted stuff up on top of the peak ring so uh we are now investigating that but the, you know i 
certainly it seems like it's at least that high. Um, and that fits models that, you know, we looked at hundreds of meter high tsunami. How high precisely is still going to get modeled? There haven't been any modern models using what we now know the geometry of the crater to be, right? So you've got to figure out how you, you got to create the initial wave. But then a large part of the tsunami comes from the water rushing back in, interacting with itself and rushing back out again. Hmm. And so to do that right, you've got to model it with the actual geomorphology, the actual shape of the crater. And that hasn't been done. That's, again, one of our upcoming tasks for the science party to work on. Interesting. Is there anything you want to share with the audience where they can check out your work? I, you know, if you guys are going to share that movie for them to take a look at, I think that's a pretty exciting one to get a, a, a grasp of, of the processes involved. And also there's going to be two documentaries coming up uh, in the spring. Oh, great. On both uh, BBC and on Nova. So there'll be a chance to have a much longer discussion via the, those media. Awesome. Is that based on your work drilling or is it on the findings? Just on the drilling expedition, yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll look forward to it. Thank you very much for speaking with me. It was a fascinating discussion. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks again, Sean, for taking the time to talk to us. It's really awesome that we're learning more about that impactor and how exactly the geology went down with the craziest impact that we have good data on. <laughs> yeah, it's really exciting. Yeah. Before we get into the dinosaur of the day, we have another word from our sponsor, Permia. Permia makes beautiful clothing and collectibles featuring their unique scientifically accurate paleo art. Their specialty shirts, cards, and canvases are designed in collaboration with world-renowned paleontologist Scott Hartman. And you can get their stuff right now on their Kickstarter. If you haven't done it yet, this is kind of your last chance because the Kickstarter ends on November 30th. And they've already reached their initial goal, so now they've got some cool stretch goals. If you back them now, they'll make some additional dinosaurs. Yeah, if they reach different levels, they have a few cool dinosaurs that you might be able to get. Yeah, some of the options listed include Parasaurolophus and Anzu, which is, I like Anzu. And I think they're doing it by a vote based on people that back them. Yeah, they're going to send out a survey. Yep. So if you want to get your vote counted, you have to show your support. And we previously mentioned that their dinosaurs and other recreations are based on real-life animals. And we found out what exactly those animals are. The Amargosaurus, which we were thinking might have been a giraffe, because it, <laughs> largely because of its shape, is actually a leopard gecko. At least that's the print that it's based on. The Bambiraptor is a vermilion flycatcher, which I think is a type of bird, if I remember from their pictures. The Ceratosaurus is a caiman lizard. Oh. Yeah, that's a pretty cool one. That is. The Dimetrodon is a red-eyed crocodile skink. <laughs> that's a crazy name. Yes. The Styracosaurus is the eastern collared lizard. And the Tylosaurus is the blue-spotted tree monitor, which I think is the one we mentioned before. That one might be the coolest color pattern. It's like this bright blue with black spots. I really like their Tylosaurus a mm -hmm. lot. Even just based on the names of what they based it on, you can tell how vibrant it is and colorful. Yeah, a lot of the names have colors in them, like the red-eyed crocodile skink. 
That's, a, that's just fun to say. <laughs> so as a reminder, they sell 3D skeletal effect cards, which are kind of a 3D print skeleton with a printed image above it so you can feel the skeleton. They have super soft t-shirts, which have the recreation of a dinosaur on the front and a skeleton on the back. And then they also have the awesome 24 by 36 inch paleoscape canvases that show animals in natural habitats. And it's all very stylized in this vectorized, cool kind of artistic rendering. So mm-hmm. if you're interested in any of those things, make sure that you get in on this Kickstarter before it ends on November 30th. Yeah, so visit their Kickstarter page at permia.com slash Kickstarter. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Centrosaurus, which was a request from Cole via Patreon. So thanks, Cole. The name means pointed lizard, and it got its name from having small hornlets on its frills, not from the nasal horns, which were found later. It was a ceratopsian that lived in the late Cretaceous in Canada and has been found in the Dinosaur Park Formation. Lawrence Lamb found Centrosaurus along the Red Deer River in Alberta, Canada. Then later Centrosaurus bone beds were found in Dinosaur Provincial Park. Some have thousands of individuals of all ages. And Centrosaurus was described in 1904. It's possible that there's so many of these individuals because they died while trying to cross a flooded river. Bone beds may have also be from a watering hole that disappeared in a drought. Centrosaurus may have the largest known dinosaur bone bed. There's one near Hilda, Alberta, that has thousands and is known as the Hilda Megabone Red. There are Styracosaurus on top of the Centrosaurus remains, so some people think Styracosaurus displaced Centrosaurus in the area. No Centrosaurus fossils have been found outside of southern Alberta. The type species is Centrosaurus apertus, and Centrosaurus was part of a naming controversy in 1915 with Kentrosaurus, which is a stegosaurid, and Kentrosaurus got alternative names, but it ended up not mattering because they're spelled differently. Centrosaurus is with a C, and Kentrosaurus is with a K, and also, as you can tell, they're pronounced differently. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yep. But if you're reading it, it's not as obvious. That's true. Uh, One species, Centrosaurus brickmani, was reassigned to Coronosaurus in 2012. It wasn't named until 2005, but then renamed in 2012. Centrosaurus probably traveled in large herds, and it was about 20 feet or 6 meters long. It had stocky limbs and a single large horn on its nose that curved forwards or backwards, depending on the specimen you're looking at. It had two big hornlets that hook forwards over its frill and a pair of small horns over its eyes, and it had a long frill with large fenestra and small hornlets along the edges. As it aged, its ornamentation decreased, which is interesting. Yeah. And Centrosaurus frills were too thin to be used for defense, so they probably used them for display or species recognition. It also had jaws that could shear through tough plants. It was an herbivore. Centrosaurus is part of the Centrosaurinae subfamily, which are large horned dinosaurs in North America with large nasal horns and brow horns. And this includes Pachyrhinosaurus, Avaceratops, Albertoceratops, and a few others. Cool. And our fun fact of the day, we touched on... Back in our episode when we covered Stegosaurus as the dinosaur of the day, but we didn't go quite all the way into the etymology. So the term Thagomizer originated in a Far Side cartoon by Gary Larson, and in this 1982 comic, 
there's a picture of a caveman kind of standing in front of a class with a stick pointing to the back half of a stegosaurus. And specifically, he's got a little stick right at the spikes coming out of the tail. And then the subtitle says, Now this end is called the Thagomizer, after the late Thag Simmons. <laughs> Which I think is supposed to imply that Thag Simmons was killed by this Thagomizer. <laughs> and yeah, so it's obviously a pretty ingenious name. Thagomizer sounds really cool. And according to New Scientist, the term was picked up by the paleontology community after the paleontologist Ken Carpenter gave a presentation at SVP in 1993 about stegosaur tails, where he described it as a thagomizer and gave reference to this far side cartoon. So very nice. It's one of those examples of art and science kind of feeding off each other. And I, I love that this word thagomizer came from a cartoon and it's now used by like the Smithsonian and natural history museums and things as like a legitimate scientific term. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. If you would like to support us, join our growing community, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again. And until next time. Thank you for listening to I Know Dino. If you have any questions or comments about dinosaurs, we'd like to hear from you at plesiosaur at iknowdino.com. And for more information on dinosaurs, go to iknowdino.com or follow us on Google, Facebook, Tumblr, or Twitter at iknowdino.